Well, we are in a study of the book of Acts, which is a very rich study indeed. It's this exciting historical account of how the church started and what God was doing in getting it started. It's a little bit like getting your DNA mapped. You know, you're supposed to learn all these things about your past and who you're related to. And that's what happens when we study the history of the church. Also, it tells us where we might have weaknesses or be prone to illness or disease when you study your DNA. And that's what happens when we study church history and realize where sin can come in and where negative things can come in that hurt us and hurt the purpose of God. So it's a good thing to look at this story in the book of Acts. Wanted to catch you up with what's going on. I mean, God took some ordinary people and did some extraordinary things. Fishermen, tax collectors, people that the world did not think were movers and changers. And Jesus Christ literally turned everything upside down with those 12 men. The story starts with them spending those three years with Jesus. And they heard his teaching. They saw him do miracles. They became convinced he was the Messiah, the sent one, the son of God. And then they watched him die. And then they spent time with him after he came back from the grave. Forty days he taught them and informed them and uh, helped them be prepared. And the one thing he said was, when they were asking all kinds of questions about what was going to happen next, he said, well, you don't know the times that God has in store, but this is what you're supposed to do. You're to be my witnesses of who I am and what I did, giving my life, dying on that cross, and raising again to show my victory over sin and death and hell. That's what you're supposed to do. But mind you, you need the Holy Spirit. Don't try this on your own. And so you wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And they did. They waited. And the Holy Spirit came in power at Pentecost. There were visual signs, and they were able to speak in each one's language. And people heard the story of Jesus in their own tongue. And then Peter preached that great sermon that included telling them that this Jesus you killed, God raised to the dead from the dead. And 3,000 people joined him that day. And church, this is really important for us to understand. Right at the beginning, the church was being built by the Holy Spirit, and those who were serving God were dependent on the Holy Spirit. Well, after that number came in, uh, there was also power from the Holy Spirit to do miracles. And Peter and John healed that guy at the temple gate, and he went in leaping and just shouting to the glory of God, and it created such a commotion that the priests got jealous again of all this attention these guys were getting. So they arrested Peter and John. And after talking with them, they said, whatever you do, do not speak or teach in Jesus' name. We forbid it. To which Peter and John said, we're going to listen to you or listen to God, because that's the very thing God told us to do. They left that place and they held a special prayer meeting. And they said, God, they didn't ask for protection. They didn't ask for comfort. They didn't say, will you keep us secure? They said, would you give us boldness to testify about Jesus? And so the place shook. God was so pleased with their prayers. And he wanted them to know that he was with them. Just think about that this morning, church. If in our prayers, and we're asking for God just to empower us to do his will and to bring glory to his name, this place starts shaking. Don't you think we'd have a focus on the purposes and the plans of God. So the disciples were seeing people come to faith, and it was a very good season. And uh, they were living together in a way with such love for one another, taking care of all the needs, some people selling things they had to provide for the poor. And it says they were of one mind, and no one among them had need. Can you imagine a church fellowship like that? One mind, no needs in the body. But in the midst of that, we get into Acts chapter 5. And this is where we have Ananias and Sapphira. And they're watching all these things going on that the Spirit of God is doing, and they decide they can sort of do it yourself. So they decide to sell their property and pretend to give all the money, but to only give some. 
And the problem with that is they were lying to God. They were denying that God himself, in the form of the Holy Spirit, was building this church. And they were also willing to deceive that community to get a positive attention for something that wasn't even truly what they were doing. And so God harshly judged them, and the church became fearful. Wow, you don't play games with God. You better take him seriously. He is a holy God, and he is building his church, and you can't manipulate that situation. Well, after that, you might think people would pull back and say, whoa, I'm not going to be involved with these guys anymore because bad things can happen. But actually, they experienced the fear of the Lord. And then that fear drove them to a closer fellowship and a more faithful witness, and yet more people were added to their number. So this causes more problems because Peter is doing so many miracles now, he just walks down the road and people bring out their friends and family members who are sick, hoping that Peter's shadow will touch them and they'll be healed. That's how many miracles are happening. They're bringing people from all over, not just from the city of Jerusalem. People are hearing, you can't believe what's happening down there. And they're all going. So guess what the uh, high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees are thinking? They hate it. So they arrest Peter and John again. And basically, um, there's a miraculous escape. God decides to get them out of jail. And they go, and he doesn't say, go back and be safe. He says, go to the temple and preach the gospel. And so they're back there preaching the gospel, and they come to have the trial, and they can't find them in jail, and they find Peter and John preaching the gospel, and they arrest them kind of quietly and say, didn't we tell you not to talk in the name of Jesus? And they said, who are you? God told us to tell everyone about the name of Jesus. And right away, in the middle of that trial, they go right back into testifying about Jesus. So these were the kind of things that were going on. And the outcome was that the church was growing past 10,000 by this point. That's a lot of people, isn't it? And trying to administer and organize and keep that thing straight was difficult. They're still having close fellowship. They're having a powerful witness. But now, chapter 6, some problems happen in this church. And we're going to see what happens here. Verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, stuff happens, doesn't it? You got that many people and that many people coming and going, and somehow the organizational structure broke down. There's no sense that somebody maliciously did this, but just in the administrative work of the day, some groups were getting food and some groups weren't. And so they had a problem. Now, it's really important for us to understand that this uh, setup is so typical of church today because these two groups were ethnically and culturally different. You know, we love church when we can gather around ourselves people that are just like us. It's easier to be friendly to them and to know them and perhaps to trust them. But God, by his Holy Spirit, is always in the business of bringing together a diverse group. Different ages, different economic backgrounds. In this case, these people were all Jews, but some of them hadn't lived in the area of Jerusalem or Judea or Palestine their whole lives. They grew up in places where they spoke Greek instead of the language that the Jews living in Jerusalem spoke. And so at the cause of the Pentecost and all the things that are happening, they're all coming in droves and they're there in Jerusalem and they have become believers in Christ and they're trying to do life together, but they can't hardly speak to one another because they don't use the same language. Trust me, if you haven't experienced that, it really is difficult to be with people you can't communicate with and to trust that they have your best interest in mind. This was actually a very hard thing to do. And so there was a problem. And in essence, 
Uh, it could have been seen as just a logistic problem. How do we get food there? But the disciples wisely realized, wow, this thing could actually rip our church apart. Because we could have people thinking, those people get all the advantage. And they're insiders, and we're outsiders. We have no influence here. We're being taken advantage of. And I have seen this happen in ministry so many times. It's such a common way for Satan to work. He wants to divide and conquer. And that's exactly what he was doing there in Jerusalem in that church. And that's what he does at places like Christ Church too. Satan is a deceiver. And if he can get a wedge driven between people and cause one group to distrust another group, well, you don't understand the sacrifice we made or you don't understand the kind of music we like or whatever the cause might be, he doesn't really care as long as he has people distrusting each other and pulling apart. And so in this case, the apostles took this very seriously. And we're going to find out how they solved this. Now, sometimes it's tempting when there are these uncomfortable moments in a fellowship to ignore it and think, maybe it'll go away. Maybe if we just let time go by, this thing will take care of itself. And that's a huge mistake. But these guys acted. They realized, we're not going to let this threat go unanswered in our church. So look at verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Interesting that we have specific names here. This is uh, something that Luke didn't do by accident. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So we know the problem is this temptation to be divided. Distrust in the camp. People accusing others. You're not treating us fairly. You're getting more resource than we get. All the money gets spent on this or that. And our ministry doesn't get a fair share of the money. I've heard those things. But what do they do? What do the apostles do? The first thing is it says they talked to all the disciples. They didn't just gather the group of 12. They didn't even gather just a group of 120 that had been together since before the resurrection. They, I don't know how they did this with over 10,000. I'm not saying they had a meeting with 10,000 people in it. But they made sure everybody's voice was being heard. They didn't exclude anyone. They recognized if trust is the problem, if people aren't trusting each other, they have to have a voice. We have to hear them. What do they think? What will they want to do? And so they called all the disciples together. This is such an important step for us. Really hard to do in leadership. Um, There are decisions that need to be delegated. We can't all get together for a meeting to decide, for instance, what color to paint a certain room in children's ministry. We can't uh, participate as a whole group in everything that goes on at church. But we must be together. And there must be ways that we share a voice together. Frankly, that's why the parish council called for the information meeting last month, and they're going to have one in May as well, so that we can interact with each other and hear each other. And nobody's excluded. Everybody's welcome at those meetings. That's an important step for us. But they had the wisdom to do that. Now, here's a little uh, personal check for all of us. Somehow, we often conclude that actually my opinion counts more than most. Someone better pay attention to me because of what? I've done more, I've given more, I've been around longer. Whatever my criteria is to decide that I'm above average in terms of importance, we have to realize that's not the way God sees things. 
because they had people that had been with Jesus all those years and suffered with him and walked with him and Peter and John have just put up with a beating. Shouldn't their voice be the one that counts the most? But they got all the disciples together to solve this problem. And it's really important. The equality that's shown there is a critical part of our DNA here as well, a real need. And then they recognized something that was really brilliant. It says they recognized they could not do all of the work. In fact, that it was really important they not stop the work they were called to do, giving themselves to prayer and the teaching and studying of God's word. And they recognize if Satan is allowed to get us involved so much in administration and taking care of food and making sure everything is done fairly, that we have no time left to pray, no time left to study, no time left to teach, the church is going to get weaker. And we're going to be stopped from the very mission Jesus said we had to preach the gospel. So they recognize what we need to do, it's an important ministry. We're not saying it's more important to do some things than other types of ministry. Actually, we have to be careful not to have that dichotomy. But the disciples realized what we have to do, we must do. In order to be successful here, we need to give this ministry away. We need to find people that can do this instead of us trying to do it. Sometimes as a church, we might think we can hire somebody to do everything we need. If something needs to get done, some staff person needs to be responsible, right? But actually, that's what they understood could not happen. Did not need to happen. God had given gifts to people. They just needed to be given that responsibility and the privilege of that ministry. And so they planned to give their work away. And they did it by saying, find men that meet these criteria. These are wonderful conditions for people to come in and serve. The first one was they needed to be men of good reputation, especially in the ESV. It points out from the Greek language there that these were people that everybody would trust. So you need something important done, and especially if there's been contention and people feel like there's been injustice, you want to find somebody that people will trust, someone that's got proven character. The Bible says don't be quick to lay hands on somebody to put them in leadership. They should have proven track record of faithfulness and serving God and serving others. And the community, when they hear that name, most people should say, oh, that's good. That's a good choice because I trust that person. And that's the kind of people they were supposed to look for. And then they needed to find some guys full of wisdom. Now, you'd like to think everybody has an equal dose of wisdom, but it doesn't turn out that way. Some people just by whatever uh, journey they've been on have more wisdom than others. And wisdom has two facets. One is people that actually know how to get this job done. How are we going to feed these widows equally and make sure that the income that's coming in is used fairly and justly and not with any prejudice? So you need somebody that's got some administrative skills and some organizational skills for this particular job. That's part of wisdom. But another part of wisdom is just knowing, basically, that relationships are as important as the facts and the details. So they needed people wise enough to do this in a way that would build relationships and build trust. And think about, okay, if we do it that way, people will still maybe be jealous or not see what we're doing. But if we could do it this way, everybody will see that we're being fair and just. And that will encourage the body. So let's do it that way. Let's have the wisdom to do it that way. That was the second thing they needed. And the third and most important thing was they said, you find us some men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because these fishermen and these tax collectors, these common guys, they understood God himself was building his church. And they didn't want to get people on board who were trying to do it with their own strength and the power of their own gifts and doing it their own way. They wanted men who would say, I am available to God and I will be used of God as he directs. And I'm looking for power from God to do this job. I am not dependent on myself. I am dependent on God. 
And so that's what they wanted, men full of the Holy Spirit. And church, that's what we want also. We don't have to have people that have a number of degrees or a number of other experiences, but for us to see God move us forward, we need people who are available to the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, who practice the kind of things that mean that they repent of sin on a regular basis and aren't entrapped by that, so the Holy Spirit can use them regularly in power. That's really what we want in our church. So they uh, set that criteria and sent these people to work. And they fished around. We don't know exactly how they did this, but they came up with seven names, seven specific people to fill this duty. Now, remember, the problem was between these two groups, these two groups of widows, the Grecian Jews who spoke Greek and the Hebraic Jews who had um, lived in Jerusalem their whole lives, or at least in that area. And so when they look for seven, you might think, if you were given that job, what would you do? Would you say, well, let's find three from one group and three from another, and then we'll find some arbitrary person, make them the committee chairman because they're not from either group, right? Wouldn't that make sense? Power sharing, we know that that's sometimes wise to do. What these guys did was they allowed God to bring forward seven people who were Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews, all seven of them. So the group that felt like they were the most disregarded and disrespected were getting the short shrift on this All seven people that were going to be in charge of this lard of food and money and provision for widows were from their camp. Now, you think that didn't help them be able to trust that the disciples meant well by them and intended that these people would be able to speak their language, make sure their widows' needs were really heard and understood, and that they could uh, give a good report about what was going on with the apostles and other places in the church? It was really a genius thing to do, but it was risky, wasn't it? What do you think about the Jews who were Hebraic Jews? Did they say, hey, wait a minute, where's our voice in that? Now, maybe they're going to take advantage of us. They didn't worry about self-preservation. They didn't say, make sure you take care of your own turf and the things you want. They said, no, if those people are not being served well, we need to make sure that we do what's necessary so that they get served well. I don't need to worry about myself. I need to worry about them. And so in that exercise, they picked these seven, and it was a brilliant move. And they, as we're going to find out, at least of two of them, had incredible ministries besides just serving food to widows. So this is also something that we have to understand. We can't just think, okay, how do I get in a position I want to have the influence I want? Or how do I get somebody in a position of influence in our church that can help me and watch out for me and and give me leverage because I know them? That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to say, what honors God and serves his church and serves the least among us with the most justice and fairness? That's what I should care about. That's who I should want to be in leadership positions here at Christ Church. Well, um, what do we learn again about this as a church model? One of the brilliant things here is they committed, those apostles committed to give ministry away. You know, that's our jobs as pastors, actually. Not just to do, but to equip others to do. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 13 says this. So Christ gave himself, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, in essence, as gifts to the church to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So here's, the, here's how it works. Pastors are supposed to help and equip people, looking for where gifts are, looking for where people have an interest, looking for where a need is, and matching up the gift with the need. And equipping that person, not just saying, go do that, 
But here's the training you need. Here's the encouragement you need. Here's the equipping that you need so you can be effective in this ministry. That's what we're supposed to do. And so guess who's supposed to do the ministry? And I get to go for a very Western Pennsylvanian colloquial expression here. It's Ewan's. You got that? Ewan's are supposed to do the ministry. It's not that the staff just does ministry. We have our role to play in what God is doing. But Ewan's are the ministers that God intends to use to carry out his purposes, to, tell, to take care of the body of Christ and also externally from here to be the voice of Christ in our community. It's not just for us as staff to do. And until we get that, we're going to have such a block in how much ministry we can do. But when we understand that God's intent is that we unleash people in ministry, I'm telling you, we can do so much in the Pittsburgh area and in this church for the glory of God. I want to share a couple of stories of things that are happening. And I hate to name names in the sense that I don't want anybody to uh, think that this person did this for credit or asked me to say something because they didn't. And I, even worse than that is I, by naming somebody, I leave out so many people that serve faithfully, and I don't like to do that. But I think it's important that you understand God the Holy Spirit is touching people here at Christ Church to do ministry. This chapter is about helping the widows. And there was a real need in that early church. And we have some people in our church that didn't get an administrative dictate from the senior pastor. They just listened to the Spirit of God. Mike Davis got a burden on his heart to start a widow's ministry. Not just to help widows with their house or some physical need, but to look at all dimensions of what they needed emotionally and spiritually as well as physically, and to see how our church should be faithful and honor God by taking care of widows. Interestingly enough, while he was kind of trying to flesh that out, Carla Batch, who's our prayer consultant on the, on the uh, council, she also had a desire to start a widow's ministry. And those two didn't even know that they were both moving in the same direction. And God brought them together, and there has been established a widow's ministry here at Christ Church, which has had some wonderful dinners and meetings, and they're trying to flesh out how to do that well. Now, widows give so much here at this church, serve so faithfully. It isn't just that widows are on the receiving end, but it is right as a church that they're not neglected, that we care for them as they feel safe and secure in the family of God here at Christ Church. And I think it's been a wonderful thing. I haven't had anything to do with this. Just watched it happen and acknowledge that God is at work. Many of us will have benefited from the cafe ministry today. Some will go right now and have lunch pretty soon. And the cafe ministry is 100% run by volunteers, no staff people, work there, except as volunteers. Cece Poister manages that thing. It's amazing. She has another job, in case you didn't realize that, but she's the one that makes sure that there's always the right food order and the things in place and works to get somebody else to help get volunteers staffed and all the headaches that go with that. Sometimes she works three shifts as a volunteer herself out there on a Sunday morning to keep that thing going. And that ministry takes care of hundreds of people every week in our church, and also generates tens of thousands of dollars every year for Urban Impact. And so you see, God has stirred her up to be faithful and to stand in the gap and to do that. Like I said, it's risky to name anybody, but our children's ministry, which is operating right now, has a ton of volunteers. That's why they're effectively helping boys and girls understand who Jesus is. Our youth ministry has all kinds of volunteers that lead small groups and develop relationships with our teenagers. Our music ministry runs significantly because of volunteers who get in the choir or do different musical things. We had ushers this morning. We had greeters this morning. The very service sheet that you used this morning for your worship service was prepared midweek by volunteers down in our basement. Every week they come, and they put those things together. 
like I said, I hate to say anything because I've left some other things undone. Just be aware. God has called so many people into action here, and it's a great thing for us to celebrate. But it does raise the question, what about you? Do you understand that God has a call on your life too? That the body of Christ needs you? It's the design of God that we all be actively involved. I know that it's uh, uh, true that God is at work in terms of our staff transitions and God's directing us to another senior pastor and all those things which are important. But it is so important in the meantime for us to understand that God is the head of this church and you, Yuns, are the ministers. We don't have a senior pastor right now, but we have 1,200 ministers. If we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, figure out how to unleash 1,200 ministers, don't you realize how much ministry is going to take place in this Pittsburgh area? That's what God's called us to do. So what happened in our story? What happened with the disciples? Verse 7. They got these really great deacons to take care of the widows, and then it says, so the word of God spread. The very thing God told them to do to be witnesses did not get stopped. It kept going. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The kingdom of God was growing like a wildfire. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Who were these priests? Priests would have been some of the most antagonistic people towards Christ and towards the apostles in the early phase. But as Peter's up there saying, you killed Jesus. Some of them got convicted of heart and said, what should we do? Repent and believe. And a number of these priests were coming to faith. Now, we look at the priests like the high priests and some of the power players in the temple, but there were a lot of priests that were poor and struggling, and it was not an easy life being a priest. But I think they looked at the church, and they'd been around the temple their whole life and around religion and around Pharisees, and they knew who all the big teachers were, but they looked at that church, and they said, there's something authentic over there. Those people are loving one another in ways I've never seen at the temple. They're not playing status, uh, who's on top of who. They are loving and graciously serving one another. And I believe that that authentic living that the church was experiencing called those priests to say, I'm going there. I want what they have. I see God in what's happening in the church, and I haven't seen it in my religious life in however many years that was. May that be our experience too. That as we love one another and serve one another and serve outside, people say, you know, I have a lot of religion in my background. I grew up in this church. I had that experience. But I have not seen God at work like I see him in a church where everybody does their part. When youans do the ministry. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm also really grateful that you're doing things here at Christ Church right now. Moving in people's hearts and lives to encourage them to be faithful and to find ways to serve. Lord, I'm thankful for the people that have come to faith just in the last couple of months here at Christ Church. Also, so encouraged that new ministries like our widow's ministry are starting and just good things are happening like that that are behind the radar and off of our screens. But you know what's happening, Lord, and I thank you for that. I do pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would just hear this invitation to faithfully serve ourselves. And that we would avail ourselves to your spirit. Lord, we don't want to do this in the flesh. We certainly don't want to do it like Ananias and Sapphira, just to impress people. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come here in power and move us to to do what we do for your glory and good. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.